Well, good morning. How's Middlebury today? It is good to be in the house of the Lord with you. It was not even a year ago that uh, I had the privilege of being here, and uh, to be able to be back uh, is really a joyous uh, privilege. Uh, I noticed that Pastor Scott scheduled this in his absence, which says something about the context of our friendship. I also, I mean, missing him is one thing, and and, uh, I'll interpret that however I, I need to, but I am more concerned that of all of the days of the year that he could have scheduled this moment for me to be with you here at this great church, I noticed he didn't schedule it for August 14th, and I'm a little bitter that I couldn't be here on Food Truck Sunday. I I mean, how hard is it to just look at the calendar, Pastor Scott, and I love food trucks. Now, I, I don't know which food trucks you're having, but my bitterness would only be increased if there happens to be a taco truck amongst the food trucks that day. So please be sure to communicate with Pastor Scott my disapproval on his scheduling, that I'm not here on Taco Sunday, if there is tacos for Food Truck Sunday. And, uh, but I'll get through it. And there's, you know, isn't it an amazing thing that, and why do I like a good taco truck? Well, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons, but not the least of which, God put us into this amazing, wonderful universe that he created for us. And then he gave us the senses to be able to engage it. And the sense is to be able to engage it in a way that would bring joy and pleasure and and purpose to our experiences. You know, I love a good taco truck because God in his infinite mercy gave us the sense of taste. And that's a wonderful thing. All of our senses are really tuned to engage the created world that God made for us. And they're powerful to, to remind us, to connect us to move us, to shape us. Have you ever had the experience where one of your senses gets triggered by a a memory? Powerful. I've been triggered to memories when I hear a sound. You know, I, I grew up in Mishawaka. My grandparents lived right up against the railroad tracks in Mishawaka. And there's just something about being in my grandma and grandpa's house and hearing the train come past their house. It can take me back instantly to those moments. Smells. I remember waking up on Thanksgiving morning. My mom had gotten up every year. She'd get up very, very early on Thanksgiving morning to begin cooking. And I'd wake up to the windows in our house would be covered in... um, what's the word I'm looking for, condensation of some sort from all of the cooking that had already happened before I got out of bed and, and the smell of pumpkin pie cooking in the oven. And so today when I hear or smell a pumpkin pie, I'm instantly transported back to my childhood on Thanksgiving Day. How about sounds? There are just some sounds that just penetrate all of our reality and take us back. I, and some of them are, are good sounds and some of them are not good sounds. And yet they still evoke these powerful memories and powerful occasions. Like, like we, one time we lived for many years in a house that bordered right up against a, a federal wetlands area. And in that wetlands area, you know, there were so many animals that lived out there and, and not the least of which there were packs of coyotes 
that lived out there. And if you've never heard the sound of uh, a pack of coyotes baying in full hunt together as a pack, it is an eerie sound. And a moment when you hear that, I'm just transported to those moments. How about this sound? I know. My dad went to be with the Lord over 20 years ago. And so uh, I'm not risking his arrest by the story I'm about to tell you. But, uh, you know, I still have a PTSD response when I hear the thump, 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 thump of a belt coming through belt loops. Um, just, whew, that sound takes me back to my childhood. Probably the most dramatic sound in my life that I've had the occasion to be on partly because of my dad's experience those last three weeks of his life and my work as a pastor for 24 years. I'd be called into moments where I would find myself in an emergency room or a, an ICU room and that sound of beeping monitors, whirring equipment just generating noise in the background the kind of hushed tones of a medical staff working urgently and quickly, but purposefully going about their business. Those sounds, if you've ever been in those occasions, those tend to be some of the most memorable noises that we ever hear. And they can transport us. If you've been in those occasions with a loved one or a family member and, and uh, you've encountered that on one occasion, you may be in a setting where that starts again and you hear it again and it instantly evokes those emotions of, of maybe some challenging times when you've been there. And I, I really can't count the number of times as a pastor. I was called into those occasions. Hospitals all through the state of Illinois generally. That's where we spent our 24 years of pastoral ministry. And those sounds evoke deep memories of people I love walking through some of the most challenging moments of their lives. And even to this moment, I can be transported to it when I hear that beeping. Countless times. I'd walk into that room, and before I'd walk into any, any of those circumstances as a pastor, I usually prayed the exact same prayer. Usually as I arrived at the hospital and the steps that I would take, making my way from the car to the front door of the hospital or to the ER entry point, I would pray something like this, Lord, let me be your ambassador, your agent of peace in this moment for this family. May your presence be made manifest when I step into that room. So about a year ago was the last time I got called into one of those occasions. See, I've stepped out of pastoral ministry into another form of ministry as a professor in a seminary. And they don't usually call the seminary professor into the ER to meet with people anymore. They they're really not interested in a discussion of human suffering in the light of God's goodness uh, as a theological concept. It's really not the occasion or the moment. So I don't usually get called into those moments anymore. But I did. On July 28th of last year, I found myself back in that ICU room. 
And in each one of those occasions, I remember seeing, as I'd step in there, the anxiety on the face of family members, tension amongst the beloved loved ones, and and if the patient were awake and conscious, so often there would be uncertainty, anxiety, maybe even fear, questions, doubts, written across their their face. And that occasion on July 28th of last year was no different. I mean, no different in in the, the questions, the doubts, the anxieties, the uncertainties. Those were typical, and those were not unlike any other of the occasions I had walked in. The medical team working urgently in a crisis situation. But I will tell you what was different. Was that normally my eyes as the pastor are looking down at the patient. But on that occasion last year, it was my eyes looking up from the bed. Filled with questions. Filled with uncertainties. It was 7.45 in the morning on a Thursday, the 29th of July, when I was laying in that hospital bed in a hospital room in the south side of Springfield, Missouri at Cox Medical Center. I had woken up, come to consciousness, and had no idea how I had gotten to the hospital, why I was in the hospital, and more importantly, why I was on a ventilator. Why my arms were tethered to the side of the bed and why an IV was in my arm. And why, why there were four or five medical staff members all working urgently around my bed. I had no answers, only lots of questions. Because the last thing I remember was 10, hour, 10 hours previous, I was sitting on my couch. It was a Wednesday night. I'd gotten home and I'd been working on you know, trying to be healthy again and eating well. I'd lost probably 10, 15 pounds. And I, was, I had decided I, had, I was going to work up my, my training to, to run a, a 10K. I'm a goal-centered person, and I needed a destination to get to. And so I was going to run a 10K, and, and I had uh, a fitness tracker, and, and there you could download uh, specific training programs to go with your fitness tracker. And so I was doing a plan to ramp up to run a 10K. And that Wednesday, normally I did all of my stuff in the morning, uh, but for whatever the reason, that day, it was just a, a day that it didn't work, and, and I had come home after church on Wednesday night, um, and it was about 9 o'clock, and, and I hadn't done my prescribed run for the day, and, and I thought about not doing it. Well, let's be honest, I thought about not doing it every day, but I decided on that occasion I would, I would go ahead and do it. So 9 o'clock, I went downstairs because it was late. I normally, at that time when the weather's nice, I run outside. But it was, it was just late, and I decided I wasn't going to go run outside, and I was going to run in the basement. So I was on the treadmill. I'd run two miles that evening, came upstairs, grabbed a, a Popsicle out of the freezer because that's the only reason to run is the reward of a Popsicle at the end of it. My youngest son 
16 years old at the time, was sitting on the couch, and he was watching a TV show. And, and he is not a TV watcher, and he has his bedroom is in the basement, and he is never on the couch at 9 o'clock or 9.30. Just isn't. But he was watching TV, and he was sitting there. Our middle son had been living up in the Chicagoland area three days prior. I had driven to Chicago, and circumstances in his life were such that it was time he needed to come home, and he needed to live with us again. And so I had driven up to Chicago, picked him up, and brought him back home to our home in Missouri three days previous. He was in his bedroom. Not all that happy to be in Springfield, Missouri. And my wife was reading a book back in our bedroom. I remember sitting down on the couch... And I had taken maybe one bite of the popsicle. I had no pain, no indications, no warning, no preparation, no lead-in. I was sitting there, I had taken a bite, and suddenly my vision, as if it were a widescreen movie screen, my vision closed in as a rectangle to one singular point in the center of my vision. And I I remember thinking, whoa, you're going to pass out. And I I remember consciously thinking in that split second, which is amazing how much we can think in a split second. I remember thinking to myself, you're going to pass out. You must have pushed it a little too hard on the treadmill tonight. I've never passed out from being on a treadmill before or running or exercising or, frankly, I don't think I've ever passed out before. And I thought I was going to pass out. I made a noise. I thought I knew the noise I made. I was informed, as I have described the experience in previous settings, I was informed by my wife, that is not the sound you made. I thought I just went, whoa. But she heard it from the back bedroom, my son who was on the couch. I slumped over onto the couch. He called for help. said, something's wrong with dad. Funny things happen in crisis moments, right? I mean, in some ways, there was nothing funny about that moment because I didn't pass out. What they did not know and I did not know until 10 hours later, there's an artery in your heart. It's called the left anterior descending artery. I'm not a doctor. Well, technically I am. (laughs) But that artery has been given a nickname It's called the Widowmaker. And um, I had a heart attack in my Widowmaker Widowmaker artery. Your odds of survival, if you have a Widowmaker heart attack outside of a hospital room, outside of a hospital, is uh, is about 6%. And uh, I instantaneously, when that heart attack happened, I instantaneously went into cardiac arrest. My heart stopped. I stopped breathing. My heart no longer was beating, and I slumped over. When they called, when my son called for help, he's like, something's wrong with that, is what I've been told, and, and they all come running out, and, and um, their first impulse, I found this out, I found this out maybe 
six, eight months, maybe a, uh, 10 months later, their first thought was that I had choked on the popsicle. Okay, if I had choked on a popsicle, just wait for it, it'll melt. So their initial impulse was to start doing the Heimlich on me. Which, there's a little part of me that would have loved to have watched all of this unfolding, even though there, there really was nothing funny, you know, it was horrifically traumatic for my family. It was okay for me, I don't remember any of it, but not good for them. They started trying to do the Heimlich on me, and then they suddenly realized I had no pulse and I was not breathing. And they figured out pretty quickly it wasn't, uh, one choking on a popsicle. My, seven, my, my, my middle son, who was 21 at the time, jumped on top of me and started doing compressions. In fact, when I came conscious 10 hours later, about 15 minutes after I woke up, my wife came in, took my hand, looked in my eyes, and the first thing she said to me was, Tyler saved your life. He did, you had a heart attack. And Tyler did compressions until you got there. Until the ambulance got there. And that made sense to me because I understand that that what they do now, oftentimes when they train in CPR, one of the primary ways they teach solo CPR now is compressions only. And so many people were not doing CPR because they were kind of freaked out about doing mouth-to-mouth. And, and so they would let somebody, in their anxiety of that moment, they, people would die because they wouldn't do anything. So, and they've also, I think, kind of figured out that, that the, just the, the motion of doing the compressions brings in and out enough oxygen that stopping to do breaths is, is losing more than it's gaining. And so when my wife said to me, he did compressions until the ambulance got there, it made perfect sense to me. I couldn't talk to her. I still had the ventilator tube down my throat. Again, another piece of information I gained months later. My mother-in-law lives with us. Um, some of you from the area may, may know my mother-in-law. Her name's Emily. And, and Emily had worked in the hospitals as a phlebotomist for 20 years in Elkhart General. And, and um, she lives in the basement. We have a mother-in-law set up. She retired and moved in with us. And, and um, my wife distinctly said, my mother did, I mean, Tyler did compressions until the ambulance got there. Several months later, somebody let it slip, and I believe it was my, mo- my mom said it was good that Emily was there on that occasion. Well, well, why was it good Emily was there? And she said, well, to, to do the breathing. I said, what? <laughs> you think it's traumatic to die? Wake up 10 hours later on a ventilator? That's nothing compared to finding out your mother-in-law did mouth-to-mouth on you to save your life. But we're okay. I mean, we're okay. 
Unfortunately for 10 months, well, 11 months now, 11 months, we've not actually made eye contact, but we're okay. <laughs> the first time I, I ever told anybody that after I had found it out, my wife was there, and I was going on being dramatic about the moment. And, uh, and my wife interrupted, and she goes, hey, there was no picnic for my mom either. So <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. That night when my heart stopped, ten hours elapsed, and in that ten hours, I coded on four separate occasions. Paramedics arrived. I was unresponsive still. They hooked me up to the defibrillator, shocked me with the paddles, restarted my heart. My son had, had done CPR for a length of time that, um, that normally com compressions are incredibly taxing on the person doing them and on the person receiving them. The time span that my son did CPR on me, compressions on me, would have been, as we've figured out, normally they would have rotated four to five people through. He was an all-state wrestler in high school. He'd only gotten there three days before. He's a fitness junkie, and there's, you know, the only reason I'm alive, well, probably a couple reasons, but physically, the reason I'm alive is because my son, while he was doing compressions, he did it so long and so intently, to which I said to him, because the first thing I realized when I woke up was, ow, my chest hurts really bad. Because the way he determined to do CPR on me was he felt like it would probably be most beneficial if the back of my sternum touched my spine on every compression. <laughs> You know, he could have just stopped. He could have called it at any moment. He did it so long. Under such extraordinary stress. The kid who had almost killed me throughout the raising of him was now the one in whom my life rested. And he could have called it at any minute and been justified. The paramedics, when they shocked my heart back into rhythm, thought I was stabilized, rushed me and threw me in the back of the ambulance to head to the hospital two miles away. In the time that they left my house to get to the hospital, my, stop, my heart stopped again, I coded again. We were told that when they wheeled me into the hospital, I was DOA. They could have called it right then. They told my wife, if your husband survives, you need to be prepared that the length of time he was in a cardiac arrest, more than likely he will have lasting cognitive impairment if he survives. That doctor at any moment as they were resuscitating me could have said, we've done all we can do. 
we're going to call it. It's a strange reality to know that all along that journey, I am here today in many aspects, in many ways of looking at the reality of this. I'm here today because my son and my mother-in-law, in the trauma and the stress in my living room, didn't call it. And that the paramedics, when they showed up, when they had received the call from 911, and they came in and they had found me lifeless on the floor of my living room, they could have rightly said, it's been too long, and they could have called it. When I was wheeled into that emergency room and I had no pulse and had not been breathing, every right the doctor would have been justified in calling it in that moment. It's a strange reality to know that there were at least four, five, six people who my life was in their hand and they could have called it at any moment. And I wrestle with that question, why am I here? Why am I here? Why didn't they call it? Why did my heart restart and stay going? Long story short, I, I ended up having a heart cath that Thursday morning. They discovered that I had 100% blockage in one artery. I had 90% blockage in the, the Widowmaker. But I also had further down the Widowmaker two more 70% blockages in that one artery. I had uh, two more arteries that were 80% blocked, 47 years old. Ended up having quadruple bypass four days later. Two weeks after that, I was in faculty meetings. Three weeks after the heart attack, I was teaching my first class of the semester and I never missed a class the entire school year. But yet it came down to moments when they could have called it. And when I have asked myself that question, Lord, why? Why am I here? Why is my story still being written? From the very first moments that I came to consciousness in that ICU room at Cox South Medical Center, this passage, this message has been my abiding guide and strength. Acts chapter 27, if you'll turn there with me this morning. <clears throat> and as we move up to those moments that we're going to read about here in a few minutes in Acts chapter 27, I'd like to kind of set the stage because before we get to Acts chapter 27, we have to set the stage and it begins in Acts chapter 21. See, the, the grand narrative of the book of Acts is this fast-paced, exciting, rollicking adventure story that begins in Jerusalem with 120 followers of Jesus still remaining after his death, burial, resurrection, and now ascension. 120 of them are gathered in a place called the Upper Room. That's the only designation we have for it. On the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out and they are sent out with this glorious mission to proclaim him to be witnesses to who Jesus is both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And in the first 20 chapters of that book we have this glorious fast paced narrative that moves from a handful of believers in Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth and that probably covers a couple decades at least 
of the church's expansion. Just story after story after story of how God shows up and the gospel advances. And then we hit chapter 21, and it's as if Luke shifts it back, slows it down, and refocuses. Because from chapter 21, 22, 23, and into chapter 24, that entire time frame is a couple weeks. Where the previous 20 chapters cover decades. Two weeks, two and a half weeks, cover chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24. He changes the movement of the story so dramatically. Paul had just finished his third missionary journey, and he was on his way back. He was heading to Jerusalem. He had a a love offering from the churches that he had brought with him. And he gets to Jerusalem, and James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says, Paul, there's all kinds of questions about you. We know who you are. We know what you're teaching. But there are others that that have kind of been triggered by some of the things and places you've been, and you're meeting with Gentiles, you're eating with them, you're preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and it's got a couple people here a little nervous. Why don't you go to the temple with some others, uh, some other believers, and offer a sacrifice? Uh, And Paul says, oh, that's fine. I'll do that. That doesn't uh, Jesus is my savior, but I can, I'm still a good Jewish man, and so let's go up to the temple. So he goes into the temple courts, and in chapter 20, as he gets into the temple courts, there's, there's people who recognize him, and they see Paul, and they, they get angry. Not Jewish Christians, but just non-believing Jewish people, non-believers in Jesus as Messiah. And they see Paul, and they, they're just filled with rage, and they want to kill him. And they pounce on him there in the temple courts. They begin to beat him. And literally the scripture says that if, if there had been no intervention, he would have likely been pulled into pieces. And the Romans who were in charge at the time and in controlled empi- the empire by vicious and immediate overwhelming force whenever there was a question of turmoil or chaos. And the Romans loved order. And they had learned well the lesson learned by the Greeks that if the Jews were going to rebel and lead a revolution against the control of a power or an empire that subjugated them, they understood that that was going to happen in the temple courts. Yeah, there's a little thing called the Maccabean Revolt that threw off the Greek Empire. And so the Romans had built a fortress that was attached to the temple. And it was called the Antonio Fortress. And, and whenever there was noise of tumult and chaos and uprising in the temple courts, they would flood the temple courts with soldiers. And on this was just such an occasion. They filled the temple courts and they grabbed this guy that was getting beat to beat to death in the middle of the temple courts. And they, they rescued Paul and they put him in the fortress and they lock him up to try to figure out what's going on. And that night, while Paul is, is a prisoner in the Antonio Fortress, another group of individuals, Jewish uh, individuals who hated Paul, swore an oath and said, we won't eat until we kill him. That very night, Paul is sitting in that prison, in the fortress, and Jesus himself shows up stands next to Paul and says these words. Take heart. Take heart. Other translations translated as take courage. See, seven times in the Bible this phrase is used. Six of them are directly in the mouth of Jesus. One is in the words of the disciples when Jesus told them to go bring the blind man who had been calling 
for Jesus to do a miracle in his life. Every one of the usages of this word, this phrase, is in the context of Jesus and his work. And I will tell you, whenever Jesus shows up in the midst of your circumstance and he whispers the word, take courage, you better get ready, you better buckle up, because something big is about to happen. Jesus only says this when he meets people in the worst moments of their life, the most hopeless and despairing occasions of their circumstances. It's in that moment Jesus utters these words. And when Jesus says these words, you better know that the next thing that's about to happen is going to rock the world of the person hearing it. It's going to change their circumstances from a place of defeat and brokenness and despair and disillusionment to victory, overwhelming joy, and miraculous intervention. And Jesus says this to Paul, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must stand before Caesar and bear witness to me. So now fast forward, two and a half years go by, maybe approaching three years have gone by by the time we come to chapter 27. In the midst of that, Paul has been in multiple different prisons. He's been moved up to Caesarea. He's been held there for a couple years in prison. He's been uh, interviewed and stood trial before two different uh, Roman governors. He's, he's been interviewed by one of the Herods, a king of the Jews through the line of the Herods. And, and all these occasions, and now Paul is again at risk of losing his life. And, and he's just wasting away in prison, despairing. And he appeals to Caesar for justice, which is ironic that the person who teaches us that the just shall live by faith, the Apostle Paul, is appealing to justice, appealing for justice from maybe one of the most unjust rulers the world has ever seen, because the Roman emperor at the time was a guy by the name of Nero. He appeals to Nero to hear his case, and they throw him on a boat. He's going with Luke and another one of his ministry traveling companions, Aristarchus, and they get on a boat and they launch out and they're going that 2,000 mile journey across the Mediterranean to go to Rome so Paul can have a hearing before Nero. In the middle of that journey, they have transferred from one boat to another and now they're on a massive grain ship that comes from Alexandria on its way to Rome, bringing the wheat of Egypt to the capital city of uh, of the empire in Rome. 276 people are on this boat, including a handful of prisoners and Roman centurions, sailors, and those who are trying to get transport across the Mediterranean on this ship that was about the size of a football field. I mean, this was no small ship. And in the middle of their journey, a terrible storm rises on the Mediterranean. They called it a nor'easter. The winds begin to blow and the waves begin to mount. And even the sailors, the experienced Mediterranean sailors, began to despair that they would survive. They didn't see the sun or the moon for days. Two weeks, actually. They had thrown off most of the food, trying to lighten the load of the ship. They threw over all the supplies, they had tried, they had run ropes under the bottom of the boat and pulled them tight to hold the boat together. And literally, the scripture says that it's not that they didn't eat, it says they couldn't eat. They couldn't hold anything down. They were being so violently tossed in the storm. In the midst of this 
bleak, desperate. We read the pages of scripture and we lose the reality of the trauma and the terror and the horror of their experience. Do you realize they had gone two full weeks without eating? I go two full hours and I'm grumpy. Two full weeks. They were wasting away. They were nearing the place of death anyways. Hadn't seen the sun. No hope was left. In the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord shows up next to Paul again. When he was in the Antonio Fortress, Jesus himself stood by him. Now Jesus goes, hey, I already told him once, we'll just send an angel this time. Sends an angel to him and says, take courage. Not a soul will be lost in this storm. You still have got to go to Jerusalem. I've still got to go to Rome. And so Paul stands up. Let's, let's capture this. Verse 27 of chapter 27. When the 14th night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding, and when they found 20 fathoms, and a little further, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run aground on some rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the boat, from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldier, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go. And as it was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will, be, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said this, he took these, said these things. He took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This all comes in light of the message that Paul had given them that Jesus, when he stood next to him, that the Lord, through the angel of the Lord, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, verse 23. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will run aground. So the apostle Paul gives this message of encouragement that the angel of the Lord reconfirms what Jesus himself told him. That in the midst of your terror, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the storm, that God still had a plan for Paul, and the overflow of God's plan for Paul meant there was an effect for those who were around Paul. They do eventually run aground, but every one of them survives. And maybe, just maybe, you're here today, and you find yourself in one of those great storms of life. Circumstances in the environment around you have conspired, and you find yourself despairing, discouraged, disillusioned, wondering why you're still here. 
Or maybe it's not the environment that's working against you. Maybe it's people. People have actively hurt you, lied to you, betrayed you, sought your harm. Maybe the storm is in your own heart, that you're weary, worn out, struggling. And at any moment, you feel like you or somebody else could just call it and give up. Maybe it's your marriage or your ministry or your walk with the Lord or your job. And you just feel like giving up. See, Paul understood that. People had been trying to call it over his life for years. Circumstances, people, even his own heart. Paul tells us when he's in prison, he writes to the Philippians, he says, it would be better for me to just go be with the Lord. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to depart. And that would be better. And yet, there was a divine mandate over him. There was a necessity over his life that said, Paul, just as you have testified of me before your people in Jerusalem, you will bear witness to me before Caesar in Rome. See, the reason that boat didn't sink wasn't because the sailors suddenly had more wisdom how to navigate that storm, and it wasn't just because maybe the storm lifted. Why was it that that, that ship was saved? Why was it that Paul continued to go forward because God had already determined that Paul's ministry, life, and mission must stand before Caesar and that he was going to go to Rome and he was going to declare that in the place and in the person of a Caesar who had declared himself to be Lord and Savior. That's a title the Roman emperors declared of themselves when the scriptures declare that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. It is a public declaration to everyone in the empire that there may be a Caesar who calls himself Lord and Savior, but there is an eternal God who came in the person of Jesus Christ and the Caesars are no Lord and Savior. There is but one Lord and one Savior and his name is Jesus. And Paul's going to testify before a pseudo Lord and Savior. See there was still a divine must. Jesus said you must bear witness before me in Rome. And so there didn't matter what was going on in Paul's own heart or every person that hated him and wanted to silence him or any circumstance or storm or challenge that would arise to shipwreck his life. None of those things could stop the will of God in his life. Why did Paul survive? Because he had to stand before Caesar and declare who Jesus was. And I want to tell you today, it doesn't matter how discouraged, worn out, or broken you are. And you may even wonder, why am I still here? Young, old, somewhere in between. You may say, why am I still here? Why have there been so many heartaches and trials? Why are my circumstances the way they are? Why are people treating me the way they're doing it? Why do I have to struggle with these challenging moments of despair and disillusion in my own heart? I want you to understand, if there is still a divine mission for you, if there is still a divine must, and if you're 
breathing here today, I'm here to tell you, there is, there is a divine necessity for your life today. And come what may, you still have a mission. And if you still have a mission, there's no power, no circumstance, no person, no own individual disillusionment. There is no demon in hell. Not even the devil himself can stop God's plan over your life. And the moment you want to call it and give up is when we declare the same thing the Apostle Paul said. I believe God. In my circumstances, I believe God. In my disappointments, I believe God. When I've been let down by others, I believe God. And so I go back to my own circumstance. I don't know why. I don't know why everything happened. And I don't know why my heart stopped that night. See, my dad's heart stopped 20-some years ago in a hospital. And they did everything they did on me and resuscitated him after a lengthy period, just like they did on me. And he never regained consciousness. For 20 days, he lingered, never regaining consciousness. I can't explain to you why and how it all works. And why sometimes God says it's time to come home and other times he says, no, you've got work to do. But I know this, if you're still breathing, there's a divine mission over your life. And you can't give up. You're called to trust God. So I wrap it up with this. Let me tell you what happened. I had two bookend moments of consciousness. One was at 9.45 on my couch. The next one was at 7.45 in the ICU room. I had two moments of consciousness that bookend what took place in those 10 hours. And I had two experiences of, as I describe it, awareness. The second one of those moments was I heard far off in the distance my wife's voice saying to me, you're going to be okay, you're going to make it. The moment that preceded it of awareness was this very clear and obvious reality that I was dying. I had a definitive physical experience and an awareness, and I struggled against it, and I was powerless to overcome it. I don't talk about what that experience was because, frankly, it wasn't the best. And a matter of a few seconds, 10, 15, 20 seconds, I don't know, into that struggle against it, I suddenly realized this struggle, I'm about to die. I'm dying. And I was very aware of that. And in that moment when it dawned on me and I was struggling against it and anxiety was rising, I just simply prayed a prayer. This was my prayer. Can you believe that as a college professor, I plagiarized a prayer at the greatest crisis moment of my life? I ripped off Jesus and I just simply said, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the midst of the struggle and the fear, as I stood or I was there at the edge, I sensed I was at the edge of something. I said those simple words in that moment of awareness and instantly from behind I sensed the presence of my Savior. He met me and he came up behind and he held me up 
as my struggle and my weakness was overpowering me. And he held me up. And I, I don't know how to describe this moment of awareness, but I'll never forget it. Whether he spoke it out loud or conveyed it, I, don't, I can't explain all of these things. It's, it's weird. But he conveyed to me in that moment, as soon as I said, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He met me. He held me up in an embrace. And he spoke peace. And the physical sensation did not change. But my experience of that moment, everything changed. And the struggle ceased, and the fear ended, and peace flooded my spirit. And at that moment, I was convinced I was going to die. In fact, I was convinced that he had come to take me to my eternal place with him. And I was overwhelmingly okay with it. The struggle had ceased. The fear had evaporated. And peace had filled it. And that scene closed. And I thought I was going to end up in his presence. In the aftermath, prayerfully, I, that's just what happened. And in the aftermath, prayerfully, I asked the Lord, why? You were there. It was obvious. <laughs> you met me. It was obvious. You spoke peace in my life. That was clear. And it happened. That was amazing. I was at the edge of life and death as I interpreted it from life moving into death. And you met me there and you held me up and you spoke this word over me. And you sent me back and I said, Lord, why didn't I see your face? You can interpret this how you want. I believe God speaks to us. I've told you exactly what happened to the best of my ability to convey what happened as stripped down and as bare as I can. But I asked the Lord, why did I not see your face? You spoke over me, you met me, you held me. Why didn't I see you? And this is what I believe I have from the Lord. Is that edge that I thought I was standing at, going from life into death, was actually the opposite. I had already passed from life into death and I was on the other side. And that he had met me and already turned me around. And he was ushering me back to my life. And that edge was not the line going from life to death. It was the line from death back to life. And somehow, some way, in his infinite plan and wisdom, he said to me, take courage, take heart. There's still a work for you to do. I don't know exactly what all that is. And there will come a day when I will have accomplished the last thing he want for, wants for me and I will step from life into eternity and stay on the other side. Having been to that edge already, I want to tell you I know beyond theory and concept, beyond theology and words, I know when we step from this life into eternity, he's there to meet us.
and there's no fear. If you've had loved ones go on before, I just want to tell you, they weren't alone in those moments. He was there. But until then, take heart. And nobody can call it over my life until Jesus says, this is the moment. And I want to pray that over you. You may be discouraged. You may be in a battle. You may be struggling. You may be disillusioned. People may be against you. Your circumstances may not be working right now. And you're about to give up whatever give up looks like for you. Give up on your marriage. Give up on your kids. Give up on your job. Give up on your future. Give up on your calling. Give up on your ministry. Give up on whatever it is. You're about to call it. I believe one of the reasons I'm still here is because I'm here to tell you only he has the right to call it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. The worship team can come back. I'm going to ask you as the worship team to do something that, that I didn't get a chance to say to you before. But earlier in the service, you sang a song, and I didn't say it to you before because it wasn't until you sang it that it spoke to me. I don't know if the worship team could do again in Christ alone. But I'd like you to lead that song. And I just want to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, are you here today and there are just circumstances, a storm, opposition, or your own heart's weariness that's bringing you to a place of great struggle and you just don't know what the future is? Is there anybody here that would say, that's me, I see that, thank you. Yep, I see those hands. Is there anybody else? Yep, I see another one. Is there anybody else? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Still happening. Yep. Over there, I see it. Is there anybody else? Yeah. If you're still breathing, he's still got a plan. And when he's got a plan, there's no power there's no other authority. There's no circumstance, no person, not even your own heart that will stop his plan. They have no right to call it over you. And you don't have the right to call it over yourself.